Hello and welcome to Radio Omniglot, a podcast about language and linguistics and related topics. My name is Simon Eger. This is episode 14, in which I will be talking about alphabets and writing systems. Incidentally, the tune you've heard at the beginning of this episode was one I composed in 2017 called The Blackbird's Tale or Confirm Narader in D. Recently, I received an email from someone asking why two particular writing systems were not included in my index of alphabets on Omniglot. I explained that such writing systems were not in fact alphabets, but abugidas, a different kind of writing system, and they were included in a different index. And my correspondent replied, saying, Oh, I never knew such writing systems existed. I was rather excited to find all these new ones. So I thought in this episode I will talk about the different types of writing system there are currently in use and have been used in the past, their structure, their names, I've mentioned two so far, Alphabet and Abugida. I'll talk a bit about their history, how they developed, and so on. First I will talk about alphabets. Now, most people know what an alphabet is. It's a set of letters and other signs, usually arranged in a fixed order, used to represent the phonemes or sounds of a particular language. The alphabets used to write different languages can collectively be known as an alphabet, for example, the Roman or Latin alphabet, or the Cyrillic alphabet. These originally were developed to write one particular language. In the case of the Roman or Latin alphabet, originally developed to write the Latin language by the Romans, and which has been adapted to write many, many other languages, including Italian, French, Spanish, English, Dutch, Swahili, Malay, Quechua, and so on. In some forms of English, particularly in India, I think, the word alphabet or alphabets can refer to the individual letters. So the the word alphabet actually comes from ancient Greek. The first two letters of the Greek alphabet in ancient Greek were pronounced something like alpha beta, and in modern Greek, alpha vita, I think. And that's where the word alphabet comes from. And in Greek, these words have no meaning. They're just the names of the letters. But the Greeks got their alphabet from the Phoenicians, who lived in what is now Lebanon, and the Greeks adapted the, the script the Phoenicians used, which was actually not an alphabet, it was a abjad or consonant alphabet, which I'll talk about in a little while, and the Greeks added vowels, they adapted some of the letters to write vowels, which the Phoenicians didn't do, and they created the first fully phonemic or phonetic alphabet that can write all the sounds of their language, and they borrowed the names of the letters from the Phoenicians. Originally, those names meant something in Phoenician. The first letter of the alphabet, Elif, or something like that, meant an ox. And the symbol originally was a picture of an ox. And the second letter, Bet, or something like that, was originally a picture of a house, and meant house. So there are a number of alphabets currently in use. I've already mentioned Latin or Roman alphabet, and there's also the Greek and Cyrillic alphabets, and all of these are bicameral systems, where you have two sets of letters known as uppercase or capital letters, and lowercase or small letters. Now those terms uppercase and lowercase come from printing, when people stored the different kinds of letters in different cases. There are other alphabets which are unicameral, have only one form of each letter. Georgian is an example, and also Korean. Another script is the abjad, or consonant alphabet, which I've already mentioned. The Phoenician script is an example. And in in, um, abjads, only the consonants are generally written. Two abjads that are currently in use are Arabic and Hebrew. Another is the Tana script, or Maldivian, used in the Maldives. 
in the Hebrew and Arabic scripts. There are letters that represent consonants, and some of them can also be used to represent long vowels. Short vowels are generally not written, although they can be with little dots and lines and other squiggles above and below the consonants. They're only written usually in texts for children, for learners, and texts that need to be recited aloud. These languages are normally written unvocalized, that is, without the markings for the short vowels. When those markings are used, they're said to be vocalized. In Tana, when used in the Maldives, it looks a bit like Arabic, and it's known as a, a vocalized abjad, because it has vowel symbols that are used normally. So you have the consonant letters, and then you have lines above and below them, never squiggles, to mark the, the, the vowels. And then we have the Abugida, which is also known as a syllabic alphabet or an alpha syllabary. Now, an Abugida is a writing system in which you have letters that represent consonant plus vowel, and each consonant-vowel combination can be modified with extra symbols or by changing its orientation or adding something or taking something away from it to change the vowel sound. So they have a, an inherent vowel, it's called, and then you can modify them to change that vowel. Abugidas are used in India, Southeast Asia, and in Ethiopia and Eritrea, and in Canada to write a variety of languages, including Bengali, Burmese, Gujarati, Kannada, Tamil, Inuktitut, Amharic, and quite a few others. Another type of script is the syllabary, which uses different symbols to represent the different syllables used in a language or symbols for most of these syllables, which might be modified to represent other ones, as in the case of the Japanese hiragana and katakana syllabaries. Other syllabaries include Cherokee, used to write the Cherokee language, of course, and E, or Norsul, used to write a language spoken in southern China. And in Cherokee and E, each syllable of the language has a separate symbol. In the case of Cherokee, the symbols look like Latin letters, but they have different sounds. E has a huge number of symbols, hundreds of them, to write all the different syllables of the language. In hiragana and katakana in Japanese, there are separate symbols for each consonant-vowel combination, plus symbols for individual vowels. And then some of the consonant-vowel syllables can be modified to indicate other sounds. For example, ka can become kya or ga or gya. In the past, other syllabaries have been used, particularly in Africa, and you could argue that the Chinese script is a kind of syllabary, a very complex one, where you have multiple symbols for representing the same sounds, because in Chinese, the symbols not only represent sounds, but also represent meanings. Each Chinese character represents one syllable. In classical Chinese, which was the main written language used in China for over 2,000 years, most words were written with one character, so it was a logographic system, with one symbol per word, more or less. At the beginning of the 20th century, people started to write Chinese more as they spoke. This was known as the Baihua movement. Baihua, literally, white speech. So in, in spoken Chinese, many words have two or more syllables. So in modern written Chinese, they're represented by two or more characters. So, Chinese is known as a semantophonetic script. It's also sometimes known as logographic or pictographic or ideographic, and it contains symbols that represent combinations of sound and meaning. The majority of Chinese characters do that. They have one part which gives you a clue to how to pronounce it, and another part which gives you a clue to what it means. These clues are not always very obvious, 
but they, they do kind of help. And then there are some characters that are basically an stylized picture of something, an animal or a person or a tree or whatever. And in combinations, they can take on various meanings. For example, the character for horse, which in Mandarin is pronounced ma, is used to write the word horse. And in other characters, to represent the sound ma. For example, in the word for mother, which consists of a character for a woman plus a horse, the woman part indicates that it's a female person, and the horse part indicates that it sounds a bit like ma. And the word for mother in, in Chinese is ma ma which is written with two characters, the woman plus horse, woman plus horse, and ma is also used in other characters to do with horses, as a semantic component it's called, or radical, rather than a phonetic component. Another type of character used in Chinese is the ideograph, which represents an idea without any reference to how it's pronounced. For example, the character for middle, which in Mandarin is pronounced something like dong, is basically a, a rectangle with a line through the middle. So it's representing the idea of middle. And the, the Chinese name for China in Mandarin is pronounced Zhongguo. Zhong, as we just mentioned, and the Guo means country. And in traditional Chinese, which is used in Taiwan and Hong Kong and Macau, the character for Guo, which means country, consists of a box, which represents an enclosure, a border. And the phonetic component is the character Huo, which means or. But in the simplified version, the Huo, which is a relatively complex character, has been replaced by the character Yu, which means jade, which doesn't help with the pronunciation at all. So when the, some of the characters were simplified, the more complex elements were replaced with simpler elements, and that kind of disrupted the link between the, the way a character is written and the pronunciation. And Japanese use these Chinese characters as well. They call them kanji. And they, when they borrowed them from China, originally they wrote in Chinese, and then they started to adapt the Chinese characters to write Japanese. And at first they used some characters to, to represent words, and others to represent just sounds. And the ones that represented sounds over time became stylized and eventually developed into the two syllabic scripts, the katakana and hiragana. But they retained the, the word characters. And when they borrowed them from Chinese, they borrowed not only the characters themselves, but also their pronunciations. So they borrowed the Chinese words into Japanese. And Chinese and Japanese are very different languages, with different pronunciation, different grammar, different structure. So in order to adapt Chinese words into the Japanese phonology, changes were made. For example, they borrowed the character for water, which originally was a picture that represented water. And in Mandarin is pronounced shui, and it became sui in Japanese. But Japanese already had a word for water, mizu, so they used that character to represent that word as well. When used on its own, this character is pronounced mizu, but in a compound it might be pronounced mizu or sui. For example, the word for water wheel or water turbine in Japanese is suisha. It's also pronounced mizu guruma. Suisha is the Chinese-derived pronunciation, or onyomi, and Mizuguruma is the Japanese indigenous pronunciation, or kunyomi. Most other compounds using the, this character pronounce it as Mizu. For example, Mizu Tamari, a puddle or pool of water. Mizu Be, waterside or waterfront. So 
So most kanji in Japanese have at least two pronunciations. One is the original Japanese word for whatever it is, and one is a word borrowed from Chinese. Sometimes they borrowed from different parts of China at different times, and the words were different, so they have several Chinese-based pronunciations, and maybe they represent several Japanese words as well. So Japanese is one of the most complex scripts in the world today. And now it's time for a tune, I think. This is The Dragon's Fancy, Wampuya Drag. Dragon's Fancy, or Mumpuya Draig, a tune I wrote back in November 2017, played on the harp. I will now talk a bit about the history of writing and the development of writing systems. The earliest known writing systems developed in Sumeria, what is now southern Iraq, in about 3300 BC. This is where the first cities emerged as well, and where agriculture was first practiced. And about the same time, another script developed in Egypt. So in Sumeria, they had been using various symbols and clay tokens to represent livestock and trade goods and to keep records, and also for numerals. And at first, they made these out of clay and put them in a clay envelope, and they pressed them into the outside of this clay envelope so you could see the shape of each symbol and know what was inside. Eventually, they realized that you didn't need to make the actual clay tokens, as they're called. They could just make the impression on the outside. And over time, these symbols developed into a fully formed writing system. And they changed and became commonly written with a, a kind of stylus. And they had a, a nail-like form, or cuneiform, which is the name given to this script, by about 1800 BC. So this script was adapted to write various other languages in that region, such as Old Persian, Akkadian, and also Hittite in, in Turkey. But it's no longer used by any language in the modern world. At the same time, the Egyptians were developing their own script, which we now know as hieroglyphs. And this was used from about 3400-3300 BC to write the Egyptian language. And they had several different versions of it. There's the monumental version, which we commonly know as hieroglyphs, which they used on monuments and very important inscriptions on tombs and such like. And then there were simpler versions for everyday writing, the hieratic script, and later on the demotic script, which used the same basic structures, but each of the symbols was simplified to make it easier to write. Actually, the Egyptians believed that the script was invented by the god Thoth, or Toth, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, and they called their script Mudu Netia, which meant words of the gods. 
The word hieroglyph comes from Greek, hieros, sacred glyph or inscription. So the Egyptian scripts were used from about 3400 BC until 396 AD, when the Roman Emperor Theodius I ordered the closure of all pagan temples throughout the Roman Empire, because by that time the Roman Empire had become Christian. And after that, knowledge of the hieroglyphic and about Egyptian scripts was lost. Various people tried to decipher them over the years without much success. And it wasn't until the discovery of the Rosetta Stone by a French expedition in 1799, and later on work by various people, including especially Jean-Francois Champollion in the early 19th century, that the script was deciphered. The Rosetta Stone was a bilingual text in Greek, hieroglyphic script and demotic script, and it helped a lot with the decipherment. The Egyptian language continued to be spoken for many years after the hieroglyphic scripts and the Egyptian scripts ceased to be used, but when people wrote it, they used the version of the Greek alphabet, which continues to be used in the Coptic Church, that is, the Egyptian Christian Church. Nobody speaks this language anymore, which is now known as Coptic, but it is used when they say their prayers, and, and it helped when people were deciphering the ancient Egyptian language because it is a descendant of that language. In around 1900 BC, people speaking a Semitic language in Egypt and Sinai, the, the language was an ancestor of Hebrew and Arabic and Aramaic and other Semitic languages, they saw the Egyptian hieroglyphs and other scripts and thought, oh, maybe we could write our own language. It may have been one person, it may have been several per people who did this. And they chose 20, 20 or 30 of these symbols and used them to represent words in their own language. So each letter had a name, as I mentioned before for the Phoenician script, similar for this early script, which is known as Proto-Sinaitic or Proto-Canaanite. Each letter had a name and a meaning, and it looked like the thing it represented. So the first letter was Elef, which meant ox, it was the head of an ox. And the second letter was Beit, which meant house, and it looked a bit like a house. And they represented the initial sound of these words, so Beit, represented the B sound, and this is the Rebus principle. And over time, these symbols lost the connection between their meaning and their shape, so they just became random shapes, really. But this script spread into other places. In Canaan, which is um, now Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, and parts of Syria, and then it was adapted to write the Phoenician language in about 1000 BC. And the Phoenicians, they were traders. They went all over the Mediterranean, trading whatever they could, and they set up colonies, city-states in different places, and in some places people saw their, their script they were using, it was a kind of abjad or consonant alphabet because they didn't write their vowels, and they adapted it to write other languages. In Greece, the Greeks took the Phoenician script and they used the letters to write Greek. And some of the, the um, Phoenician consonants didn't exist in Greek, so they said, okay, well, these can be represent our vowels. They don't have vowels, we can use these, these consonants we don't need to write vowels. And the Greeks made the first alphabetic script. And similarly, in Iberia, in what is now Spain and Portugal, ancient people there adapted the Phoenician script to write their own languages. Some were Celtic languages, possibly, others maybe related to Basque. And in uh, Carthage, in North Africa, what is now Tunisia, the Phoenicians set up their city-state there, and they, the, the alphabet they used was adapted to write local languages, 
and this is still used to some extent, particularly in Morocco. It became known as Tifinach, and this is used to write local Berber languages, such as Tamazit. So the Greeks, they, they started writing, and then they settled in different places in southern Italy and around the Mediterranean, like the Phoenicians had before them. And the Greeks in Italy, they were using an alphabet, and some of the other people in Italy, the Etruscans, who live in what is now Tuscany, and that kind of area, they saw the Greek alphabet and they said, oh well, maybe we can use that to write our language, and they adapted it to write their Etruscan language. And later on, the Romans did the same. They saw the Etruscans had their, this, this alphabet, and they said, well, we could use that maybe, and they adapted it to write Latin. And then since then, many other alphabets have developed from this root. Other writing systems developed independently in other places. In China, for example, they, they developed their own script, traditionally based on pictures, and over time it became more and more complex and adapted to write other languages, including Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, and various languages spoken in China. In Central America, a number of writing systems emerged. The earliest writing-like symbols date back to about 1200 BC, were used by the Olmecs. Little is known of these symbols, whether they were a fully developed writing system or something approaching that, we don't know. And then from about 500 BC, the Zapotecs were using writing-like symbols, and the first known fully developed writing system was used by the Mayans from about 250 BC. And then later on, the mixed text in about the 13th century AD developed a writing system as well. And these systems were all structured a bit like uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs, although they looked very different. They had symbols to represent whole words, syllables, and individual sounds as well, and these were used in combinations. Knowledge of these scripts was lost after the Spanish conquests of these regions. The Mayan script was deciphered in the 20th century. Less is known about the other scripts. I hope you are now a bit more familiar with the different types of writing system there are and how they developed. If you'd like to find out more about this or any other episode of the Radio Omniglot podcast, you can go to omniglot.com slash radio. On the notes for this episode, you can find illustrations of a number of different writing systems, definitions, and links to the tunes that feature in this episode. I like to feature tunes that I've written myself, or ones related to the subject I'm talking about. I haven't written any specifically about writing, but I might do in the future. You can find out a lot more about all the writing systems currently in use and many used in the past, and about the languages they are used to write, on omnigot.com. My name is Simon Ager. You can contact me at feedback at omnigot.com. I hope you found this interesting and informative. If you like this podcast, you can tell your friends about it, perhaps, and share it on social media and such like. If you're feeling very generous, maybe you could make a little donation. You can find the donation button on the OmniGot website and on the Radio OmniGot website as well. That's all I have to say for now. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.